Good evening and welcome to Tiski Sour, where we have watched Keir Starmer's full 90-minute speech, so you don't have to. We're going to take you through all the best bits this evening, and to do so, I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, were you on the edge of your seat today watching Keir go on and on and on? I was on the edge of my seat trying to, to leave, uh, trying, to, trying to get the hell out of my, my screen, because it was just both it's when something's both boring and also just incredibly aggravating and aggressive that's quite it's quite a difficult thing balance to strike but he managed Keir Starmer's speech to Labour Party conference was billed as a make or break moment for the beleaguered party leader it certainly had its moments though at an hour and a half it was way way too long We'll pick out the key bit so you don't have to subject yourself to the full 90 minutes, the length of a feature-length film, to kick us off the most predictable parts of the speech were the insults directed at Jeremy Corbyn. This is our first full conference since the 2019 general election in which we suffered our worst defeat since 1935. To those Labour voters who said their grandparents would turn in their graves, but they couldn't trust us with high office. To those who reluctantly chose the Tories because they didn't believe that our promises were credible. To the voters, to the voters, to the voters that thought we were unpatriotic or irresponsible, or that we look down on them. I say these simple but powerful words. We will never, under my leadership, go into an election with a manifesto that is not a serious plan for government. You could see that statement got a, a mixed response from the audience on the conference floor. That was one of the heckles, actually, that I thought was, was more effective, saying it was your Brexit policy. It wasn't the manifesto. Obviously, the Brexit policy was, was in the manifesto. Some of the heckles were, were, were less effective than that. Of course, what Keir Starmer said there is a million miles from what he said in his leadership election when he said we shouldn't get rid of the, the policy shifts we made between 2015 and 2019. It also conveniently forgets that it was Starmer's policy for a second referendum not any other detail in the manifesto that was principally responsible for Labour losing two and a half million votes between 2017 and 2019. In both of those elections, Labour went to the country with a radical manifesto. In only one of them did they get destroyed. John Trickett had a decent response to what Keir Starmer said there. He said, I sat through the whole meeting that agreed our 2019 manifesto, just metres from Keir Starmer. Every single policy was agreed unanimously, just to spell it out, including by Sir Keir. I recall not a single peep of dissent from that direction. So once again, we have Keir Starmer both rewriting history and going against what he had said 18 months earlier. It goes without saying, you can guarantee no one on the BBC will call him out on this, I have to say, watching the media response to this, I've just been going bananas. Anyway, moving on. 
The speech had been billed as a chance for Keir Starmer to talk about who he is and where he comes from. That involved multiple references to his late father and set the stage for a decent joke. I'm not from a privileged background. My dad was a toolmaker. Although, in a way, so was Boris Johnson's. <laughs> My dad was a toolmaker in a factory and worked on the shop floor all his life. He gave me a deep respect for the dignity of work. There are some lines from Auden that capture the beauty of skilled work. You need not see what someone is doing to know if it's his vocation. You only have to watch his eyes. How beautiful it is, that eye on the object look. I saw that eye on the object look in my dad. The pride that good work brings. It puts food on the table and it provides a sense of dignity. So, so when I hear that this country is creating so many low-paid jobs, and when I tell you that good work and fair growth will be the priority for a Labour government, I haven't learnt this in some political seminar. I learnt it around the kitchen table. I learnt it at home from my dad. How pride derives from work. How work is the bedrock of a good economy. And how a good economy is an essential partner of a good society. That is why I am so proud to lead a party whose name is Labour. Don't... Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Labour the party of working people. That emphasis on work was there throughout the speech. On the one hand, I suppose that could be to distinguish the Labour Party and their voters from the Conservative Party who don't have to work for their money. I think also it's probably trying to highlight that Labour aren't the party for the work shy. Um, we, we know where that discourse can take us. In the next part of the speech... Sakir then talked about his mother being a nurse who became disabled with Stills disease. He explained how those experiences taught him the importance of the NHS. So that was the story of where Starmer came from. To my mind, though, the most inspired part of the speech concerned what Starmer had done. The Labour leader was introduced to the stage by Doreen Lawrence, who thanked him for helping to bring her son's murderers to justice. Then, during the speech, Starmer told the story of a young woman named Jane Clough, who had been murdered by her partner while he was released on bail. Starmer described the day Jane's parents, Johnny and Penny, came to him when he was Director of Public Prosecutions. 
on the day that John and Penny were supposed to come and see me to tell me about the cruel murder of their daughter and how the criminal justice system had let them down. My own daughter was born. We had to push back the meeting. It was an incredibly emotional day for all of us. As I listened to John and Penny tell me Jane's story, I knew that a great injustice had been done. I made a promise to John and Penny at the end of that first meeting that I would work with them to make sure that no other family went through what they'd been forced to endure. And we rolled up our sleeves and we changed the law. I am delighted to say that John and Penny have become good friends of mine. And I am beyond honoured that they have joined us here today. Conference, John and Penny Clark. Now, that moment, to my mind, was effective in the same way that some of the videos at the start of Keir Starmer's leadership campaign were. It was other people talking about how Starmer had helped them in the past in his previous job as a lawyer. Um, in, in, that, in that video at the, the start of the leadership campaign, we saw an ex-minor, we saw McLiable defendants, and we saw Doreen Lawrence again, all speaking um, about how he did his job quite well at that period of time. It seemed to me smart that they did that again in, in this speech. I think having a prop of sort of people turning up who can vouch for you isn't a bad move. The downside, I think, um, fairly obviously actually, is that if you're most effective when people are talking about your past job, potentially you are better at your past job than you are at the present one. I think Keir Starmer, potentially a decent lawyer, not a particularly good politician. Everything I've shown you so far was in the first 20 minutes of that speech. There was another 70 minutes after that. In that time, he did announce some policies. We'll get onto those in a moment. But on the whole, it was a rather rambling affair with lots of discussions of robots, tools, and even gene editing. I won't subject you to all of it. Instead, let's skip to Starmer's closing argument. This is a big moment, a time of rapid change. The first pandemic in a century. The aftermath of Brexit to sort out. The urgent claim of the climate. Then our own domestic questions. Providing a secure job that pays a decent wage. A good school nearby. Health and social care that you can rely on. A home you can afford. This is a big moment that demands leadership. Leadership founded on the principles that have informed my life and with which I honour where I have come from. <laughs> Work. Care, equality, security. I think of these as British values. I think of them as the values that take you right to the heart of the British public. And that is where this party must always be.
I think of these values as my heirloom. The word loom, from which the idea comes, is another word for tool. Work, care, equality, security. These are the tools of my trade, and with them, I will go to work. Thank you, conference. Those values are his heirloom and the word loom, which comes or from which that idea comes is another word for tool. And he will go to work with that tool. It's all it was all slightly bizarre, that, that ending. Um, I thought I'm also not sure that the slogan work, care, equality, security is going to catch on. I think if you're going to do a slogan, it's better if it works as a sentence rather than just four disparate words. Anyway, this is all detailed. Dahlia, what did you make of that speech? Yeah, I mean, it's no, it's no for the many, not the few, is it? It's, it's, you know, we were, we were down in Brighton and we were at the World Transformed Festival, which happened alongside Labour Party Conference. And the energy and the difference between those two spaces where TWT was this space of discussion and inclusion and participation and having, you know, people from different political traditions being pleased to see one another and engaging in one another's visions versus, you know, Labour Party Conference, you could really, tell who was there for what when you were just sort of walking around the streets and obviously to an extent one could argue that one event there is to you know engage in this imagining work and to engage in this activist work and social movement work that has bigger space to sort of be creative and the other one is is about a party that wants to be in government but the gulf was just so unimaginably wide and and not only that but you didn't have this dynamic where both of these forces are sort of feeding off one another and playing different roles in the transformation of British society but rather you have you know as you sort of outlined Keir Starmer actively trying to cultivate a message of antagonism towards the party members and also the movement people who are represented by that kind of the world transformed and I just think when you think about the, the the exact moment that we're in, you know, the moment of literally petrol shortages, you know, this isn't something that we've seen for, for decades in this country. People aren't interested in factional labor beef at that at this moment. They're interested in what labor vision labor's vision is for the care crisis, the climate crisis, the crisis of work. And for care, he offered some sort of important platitudes, but they frankly, didn't sound that different to what we hear from the Tories. You know, even the Tories are kind of cottoning on to the idea that you need to give lip service to to funding care services. And the work vision, completely out of touch. He's he's harking back to this industrial notion of work that is does not exist in this country and is unlikely to come back. It, it's, you know, saying things like returning to this old, this new labour vision of, you know, we're not the party of the work shy, i.e., you know, the party of people who are on, you know, social security or the party of people who are unemployed or who are precariously employed. But the vast majority of your base are people who are, do not have stable relationships to work because the work is not out there. Secure, stable work that pays a livable wage is simply not out there. And your answer to that is not to look at how has capital organized society in a way that people who work hard and people who, 
are part of our society, aren't able to afford their basic needs, you go into this victim blaming kind of benefit scrounger culture that was, you know, perpetuated by by new labor and really spearheaded by new labor. And that's just not a language that's going to resonate for the people that are going to vote for you who are disaffected by the economy that has been that has been designed. And then finally, the stuff on climate breakdown, again, just sort of very weak platitudes on net zero, not much vision for the reparative role that Britain would play uh, in a climate justice movement. Not much distinction between what we would hear from Boris Johnson on climate crisis. And then you pair that with the fact that, you know, the Labour for a Green New Deal's motion was they tried to forcibly prevent it from being even discussed at Labour conference. And I think that that what this is, the fact that in the midst of so much crisis in this country, Starmer has chosen to essentially trash his membership. This is what people will remember from this conference, if they remember anything. The vast majority of people won't remember a single thing from this conference. But the headline message there is that Keir Starmer is trashing his membership. And you have to remember, it's the membership that put Keir Starmer in charge. It's actually not the electorate that put Keir Starmer in charge. The membership put Keir Starmer in charge. And he's not setting a very good example. Um, He's not giving a good indication to the British people of how he treats people who vote him into power. Not only do we have the you know complete U-turn and the completely different platform that he's actually operating on versus what he uh what he ran on, but also, you know, you kind of generally expect that of any politician, but it's the the, the deep disdain that he has for the people who put him in power. It doesn't send, it doesn't send a good message. And I think that it's very important for Keir Starmer to understand that it is actually not the job of the party membership or of the electorate to vote for you. It's actually not their job to force themselves to get behind you. It's actually your job to convince them that you are the person who should be leading them. It's actually your job to engage with them, to win their votes, to build a coalition that can put you in power and keep you in power. And I think that he's got that massively twisted and it comes through in the disdain that is dripping from his tone when he sort of talks about uh, wanting to sort of leave essentially what was the biggest expansion of any party in Europe behind and describing that as if it was some kind of tragic event, you know, that the Labour Party grew so heavily and members got, got so engaged. And what I will finally say is that it is very clear that Keir Starmer's days as Labour leader are numbered. You know, this was the headlines from this, as biased as the the media is towards or, you know, against Labour Party membership, even still, he couldn't get himself a decent headline uh, in a lot of the media. So it's very clear that his days are numbered. So we need to really think about what our strategy is now. There's no clear immediate successor, given that the Labour Party is becoming an establishment that is not interested in democratic engagement and democratic power. We need to really think about what building power in that context means. Uh, And we need to sort of really understand that the Labour Party, particularly under the current leadership and what I assume will likely be the leadership after, is part of the British state. It is not part of the movement that is trying to hold the British state to account. And so in that context, I think we need to to really think from now, what what is the strategy? What is the move for for when Keir Starmer inevitably is forced to step down as Labour leader? 
Mm, I do think, I mean, I do think he's got some of the headlines he wanted. I mean, because it, it seems to me that they've got some sort of phase for entering government. I think they now want to show they're nothing to do with Jeremy Corbyn. They then want to reassure people in the red wall, which I think is what all this talk about family and, and work is about, because Deborah Matteson has presumably gone out and, and done some focus groups, and that's what they've fed back. And then they think they're going to be able to, at the end, just say, oh, by the way, you young people, you people who care about the environment, we'll give you maybe free tuition fees, we'll give you something else, and then you can all come back. And if that's the plan, I don't think they'll mind the headlines today because you've got the, the BBC, Starmer promises serious plan for government. What was leading many of the news bulletins was was Keir sort of speaking down to the hecklers, which is the image he wants to do of sort of, I've defeated the left. And um, last night, he the news line was a very softball question from Laura Koonsberg asking him, what do you value more, party unity or entering government? And which is the easiest question for him to answer because his whole you know, the purpose of his leadership is to suggest that there is some conflict between party unity and entering government. Anyone would answer that, entering government. But he, he, she's accepting the framing. I don't think you can enter government with a party as divided as, as Labour currently is. And especially, and, and at this point in time, I don't think you need to. Keir Starmer could be learning from someone like Joe Biden. I know lots of our viewers will have lots of problems with Joe Biden, so do I. But what he did show is that you can win as a centrist candidate whilst being inclusive of the left, while adopting policies of the left, um, such as you know, massive investment, higher minimum wages, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, whereas Keir Starmer seems to be just trying the Blair strategy all over again. Let's go to the policies announced. There were some policies in this speech. As I say, none of them really making the headlines. All the headlines are just, I'm a serious guy and I don't like the left. But let's, for the, for the purposes of, of, of being comprehensive, go through the policies which were announced. There was to ensure mental health support is available less than a month after less than a month by hiring 8,500 new specialist staff. I think anyone who's ever known anyone who needs support for mental health will support that one. Retrofit 19 million homes with a decade within a decade to make sure they are properly insulated and energy efficient. Recruit thousands of new teachers and provide extra training for te head teachers. Fast track rape and sexual assault cases and toughen sentences for rapists, stalkers and domestic abusers. Set a target to invest a minimum of 3% of GDP into science and research and introduce a Clean Air Act and make sure everything government does meets a net zero target. Um, none of those, I think, are going to radically transform uh, Britain or the idea that, that, you know, of what Labour would do when they get into government. But I suppose it's a bit of a holding position. The problem for me with, with this, Dahlia, more than anything, is that I think at this point in time, Keir Starmer is trying to impress the people who didn't like Jeremy Corbyn. There are a lot of people in, in the population who didn't like Jeremy Corbyn. He's trying to impress them, say, I'm, I'm nothing like this guy. What I don't think he appreciates is how much bad blood this is creating among a significant minority of the population who did like Jeremy Corbyn, right? And, and who do think that lying to the Labour membership is a bad thing. Now, that's, that's probably not a majority position. You know, if you ask the general public, do you care that Keir Starmer told, to the, told some lies to Labour members? They might well say no, I, I don't know. But I think that is a big enough proportion of the electorate is going to create enough bad blood, unnecessarily so, by the way, that it is really going to stand in the way of him winning any any general election. He seems to think that we're all going to have short memories and when the election comes around, sort of say, oh, fine, yeah, you might have called us racist, you might have lied to us and then essentially laughed about it, bragged about it, but we'll, we'll come back to you now because there's no alternative. I think he's probably going to get a nasty surprise. Yeah, and I think that we really need to think, you know, anyone who is invested in Labour being in power 
needs to really think about what the pathway to Labour being in power is. There is so much stacked against the party, regardless of leader. Uh, the media is overwhelmingly pro-conservative, overwhelmingly so in terms of the media that people consume. And that goes across different mediums from radio to broadcast to newspaper. And also, you know, the geography of Britain has changed such that people who are who would be more inclined to vote for Labour, whether, you know, people of colour, working class people, people who are precariously employed, young people, they are all being concentrated in cities. And so a lot of the kind of electoral votes are going towards the, the Conservatives. So essentially, there are in, designed within the system is a system that is against the Labour Party being in power, regardless of, of, of who is leading that Labour Party. That is the situation that we're in now. So I don't know how you get into power without a committed membership that is willing to do the groundwork that can make up for the fact that we don't have, that there is not that pathway to power. Obviously, there was a committed base for Jeremy Corbyn and it wasn't enough. I'm not saying that it is enough on its own, but we have to remember that I can't see a pathway without it because we simply cannot push through the the narratives of the media, which, you know, even more so than in 1997 when Blair won, are endemically pro-Tory uh, and, endemic, and endemic and, and very lacking in diversity is the main issue as well. You know, kind of the concentration, the monopolization of the media means that people are hearing sort of one message in slightly different costumes from all corners of the media spectrum, but also, again, the changing geography of the country. So my question is, how do you expect to get to power in that context without a membership and an organizing force that is going to go out and do that groundwork for you. You know, I was hearing from people in Brighton. One thing I just kept hearing was that there was, it, it's a real struggle to get people to do campaigning and canvassing during things like local elections, during, you know, uh, during any moment where it's, where it's required sit in the past sort of year or so in a way that just was not the case over the past four years. So the reason I think it's such a mistake, mistake is because of, you know, the votes that will be lost, the necessary votes that will be lost, but also because I don't know what your party machinery can do right now. I don't think it can be up to the challenge, the uphill battle that we're in. It's not enough on its own to have, you know, a highly organized, geographically dispersed, group of organizers who are willing to go out there and do the work for you. But I don't think it's possible if you don't even have that. I mean, I, I, as we said on, on Monday's show, it's it's not even clear that Keir Starmer was particularly fussed about winning an election. The principal mm. priority at this conference was to secure a means to, to, to make sure there's no left winger on an election for his successor. Um, so it seems from sort of the voices, the, the briefings that are coming from Keir Starmer's team that they see this as job done. They're not actually that fussed how people absorb the speech. I did think it was rather unprofessional to, to have a 90-minute speech. If you, if you really cared about people listening to your, your message and your speech, you would, you would have edited it a little bit more. Um, so I was, I was somewhat surprised about that because I thought he had employed, I presumed he'd employed some, some, some professionals, potentially not. Uh, Pennywise says, sadly, I wasted 90 minutes of my life watching that boring claptrap just full of empty platitudes. As I say, even though I disagreed with quite a lot of the first 20 minutes, I thought it was engaging. After that, 
I completely agree with you. Dalian Haynes on the YouTube Super Chat says, Nick Thomas Simons, unable to roll off the minimum wage on LBC, tells you everything you need to about Keith's labour. Hashtag Tory light. That was a fairly awkward moment. That was on LBC yesterday speaking to Nick Ferrari. And yes, the, the Shadow Home Secretary didn't know what the minimum wage was. He said it's something under £10. And the reason he knew that is because Labour's current pledge is to, to raise it to £10. So he's like, we, we will raise it to £10. Nick Ferrari asked him, what is it now? He says, well, it's definitely less than £10, uh, which I suppose was, you know, using some, some inference there. I'm going to go on to our next story. The sentencing hearing of Wayne Cousins has brought the grim details of the murder of Sarah Everard into the public domain. It's now apparent that in committing his horrific crime, Wayne Cousins exploited to the full extent his job as a police officer. Up to now, it had not been public knowledge how Sarah Everard had found herself in Cousins' car. We now know that Cousins abducted his victim by faking her arrest. That involved handcuffing her after claiming she had breached COVID guidelines. The BBC report... Cousins showed his warrant card before restraining Miss Everard, putting her in his hire car and driving away. The 48-year-old had worked on COVID patrols in January and so would have known the appropriate formal terms regarding potential breaches. The whole kidnapping took less than five minutes. Astonishingly, the court was told that a couple travelling past in a car had witnessed the abduction, but they assumed Miss Everard must have done something wrong. Following the kidnap, Cousins drove to a remote rural area where he raped Sarah Everard. The court was told she was killed by strangulation with Cousins' police belt. It wasn't until a week after her disappearance that Everard's body was found in a woodland stream in Ashford, Kent, just metres away from land owned by Cousins. Let's go back to the BBC report. They write, her body and clothes had been put inside a refrigerator and set alight before being moved in builder's bags. The court heard that a couple of days after burning Miss Everard's body, Cousins took his wife and two children on a family trip to the woods. These details are just more horrific than, than we could have imagined. Dahlia, I want to, to bring you in. What, what, what response can we possibly have to what, what we've learned today? I mean, it's, it's absolutely just, obviously, this case is incredibly difficult to hear about. It's incredibly difficult to listen to. I think that there is an issue here where when you have an entire group of people, i.e. the police, who have the state backing to essentially violate and force people's bodies. And it is seen as something that you cannot question. And that if you dare to question the right of someone to do that, um, of, of one of these groups to do, a member of this group to do that, you are heavily criticized, you are accused of all, of all manner of things. And whenever you have a, a system that is designed in that way, you are going to not, it's not so much that you're going to give cover to the odd bad apple, but you're actually engendering the conditions for abuse and violence to take place. We know that this issue is much bigger than Sarah Everard. We know that between 2012 and 2018, 600 accusations against police officers were, were raised um, of a sexual nature. And only 119 of those were actually upheld. So the vast majority of those are not upheld. Um, and the vast majority of those don't face any accountability. But when it comes to the question of 
sexual violence and policing, I think it's important to remember two things. First of all, we have the obvious case that, you know, when it comes to gender-based violence, that police are not only responsible for for perpetuating gender-based violence, but also, you know, anyone who has approached a police officer, anyone who has gone to a police station after experiencing a sexual assault will know that you are essentially re-traumatized when you go and you speak to the police. Uh, you know, I know for a fact that you will have questions like, why did you go back to him? Why did you let him take that photo of you? Why did you send him that image? Why did you, why did you, why did you? So all of these, so, so there's this sort of well-documented uh, mishandling of sexual violence claims by the police. So we know that policing is not equipped to deal with the problem of sexual violence in this country. We know that. But when it comes to actually the role that the police have, not just in being unable to address or prevent sexual violence, but actually in perpetuating sexual violence, Sarah Everard is actually a unique case in the sense that this is actually not the typical way in which we see sexual violence at the hands of the police take place. It's not typically an off-duty cop who, you know, kidnaps someone off the street. It's actually much more endemic than that. So, you know, I tweeted about this earlier, but how many times have you heard jokes, offhand comments about rape in prison? How many times have you heard jokes about dropping a bar of soap in the prison showers? Those are essentially jokes and the normalization of the fact that sexual violence is seen as part of the punishment of incarceration. It's seen as part of the justice of criminal justice and whether that's, you know, creating particular conditions of violence and trauma that leads lead inmates to harm one another or whether it's sexual violence and sexual abuse coming from officers towards um, towards inmates. When you look at strip searches, when you even look at stop and search, you know, anyone that, if you speak to anyone who has been a victim of stop and search, it's violating, you know, it's violating and it's violating in the fact that someone is able to exert control over your personhood and you are not allowed to question it or ask anything about what is being done to you without threat of even further violence. And so the thing that I really want to get across is that when we talk about sexual violence and and policing, it's important to address how, you know, so many cops that have, uh, you know, accusations like Wayne Cousins had, like accusations of sexual misconduct against them, how they are able to continue to not only be police officers, but actually gain more and more power as police officers but also how our prison system, how our system of policing that is supposed to be there to keep us safe from sexual violence, not only is inadequate in dealing with sexual violence, but is actually one of the biggest systemic perpetrators of sexual violence in itself. You can't create a system that has sexual violence at the heart of it in the way that I've just outlined and not, ex- and not expect that to bleed out in ways that you might not have predicted. So I think it's important to to talk about specifically what happened in this instance and how how we can ensure that there are no more Sarah Everards, but also understand how this wider culture and this wider logic is actually embedded in parts of, of policing and parts of the prison system that we actually consider to be normal business as usual. What are your thoughts on, I suppose, on this specific case about how something like this can be made sure never to happen again. I was, I was listening to the radio today with a, it was a, a female 
um, police officer. I think she was she was high up in one of the police forces. She was saying that one thing that needs to happen is police officers need to be, you know, trained, and you know it needs to be really put forcefully that they should be calling out their colleagues if there is any sign whatsoever that they are abusers, that they are the kind of people who will perpetrate sexual abuse. And she was saying, you know, and she, she sounded like she was pretty confident about this. This is not happening right now. And there are a lot of police officers who are you know, not necessarily the next Wayne cousins, but who are people who could well and could well be doing it already, using their position as a police officer to abuse people. She was saying, yeah, you, you could change the culture and try and get police officers to call out other police officers. What else do you think would be a commensurate response? I mean, I don't think that the issue is, is lack of training of people to call these things out. I'm sure that people do call these things out. Although what I would say is that anyone who's been on a demo, particularly a demo that is critical of the police, will see police acting violently and aggressively in a deeply unnecessary manner and will see their colleagues standing by and letting them have at it. So I don't think that the training is the issue. I think the issue is what the police are told they are there to do and what the police are there to do. And the fact that essentially we treat the fact that, that you know, as a police officer, you know, we heard in that story that this police officer was arresting Sarah Everard and people witnessed it and they just said, we just assumed that she had done something wrong. I think we need to really understand that if you're going to give a group of people the back it, the state back it, there are very, very few instances in which you actually need to physically touch someone. Um, and what we know about the police is that they do it wantonly. They do it without, it's seen as such a, an everyday you know, nothing thing to sort of arrest someone and bundle them into a car and take them off to a police station. It's an un, it's an it's a mundane thing to uh, beat the shit out of protesters at a demo. It's seen as a mundane thing to stop someone while they're you know getting on the bus or doing something mundane and demand that they empty all their pockets and that you can pat them down and even take them to uh, sell and strip search them. This is an incredibly huge amount of power, which, as you know, I mean, I know we've had disagreements on policing, but I don't think it's something that actually prevents or solves violence and harm. I think that act, that whole thing, that whole process, even when it doesn't go as far as it did in this situation, I think it actually perpetuates trauma and harm amongst people. I don't think it really protects or, or helps them. But even if you're going to have that as a concept, we have to understand that this is just such a huge amount of power and it's done so with such little accountability and such little transparency and such, it's so blasé. And I think that, so there's that kind of issue. There's that issue of our general culture towards the police where anything that a police officer says goes. And that's something that is, that is, you know, endemic in our media. It's endemic in our culture. We, we know this, but I think there's also a really interesting thing to be said about Obviously, we're we're also dealing with uh, the, the murder of Sabina Nessa, and there have been some conversations about how you know, oh, like visibility for for Sarah Everard has been so much bigger than Sabina Nessa, and you know this is related to the fact that Sabina Nessa is a woman of color and Sarah Everard is a white woman, and I, I, that is probably true. It is probably true that you know there are more column inches, there are more sort of there is more shock. There's more sort of fear 
uh, or media attention towards a white woman victim than a brown woman victim. I think it's really important to note that both women are still at, at the end of the day are still in the same position. They still were both killed by a violent man. And Sarah Everard has still not gotten justice. And what I mean by that is, first of all, justice would be her having never been killed in the first place. But the changes that actually need to happen are unlikely to actually happen despite that visibility and despite that recognition. And so as much as, yes, there is a question of why, I mean, I don't know if you can call any victim of a murder privileged in any way, but there is a sort of a sense of unevenness and visibility. But at the end of the day, visibility and conversation doesn't actually get justice. What gets justice is systemic change. And what I believe that systemic change has to look like is a radical, radical, radical shift away from policing as the way that we deal with social conflict and social issues. Because more often than not, all the police do are tr is traumatize people, harm people who then go on to do more harm within their community because of how they've been traumatized uh, by the police. And even when they aren't the perpetrators of that harm, they don't actually have the tools and the ability to deal with harm when it has taken place and to deal with actually helping the process of healing when people have been harmed. So we need a radical move away and reduction of the role that police play in society. Because at the moment, what we have is a dynamic where the state has withdrawn all of the, the small mechanisms that it might have for offering care, for offering well-being, for offering welfare, and, a, and an absorption of all of that into the militarized, violent arms of the state. So we see an expansion of policing at the same time as we see a reduction in welfare. And that is the wrong direction. And I think that is why as much as Sarah Everard might, we might, she might be in the front pages, we might be hearing a lot about her, we might be having a lot of these conversations. What matters isn't visibility. What matters if, is if that visibility actually gets changed. And I don't think that from the way that this story is being narrativized, which is very much still bad apples and an otherwise healthy tree, uh, really suggests to me that we're going to get to where we need to get to. We disagree on the end goal. Do we want to reform the police or abolish them? I think we can both agree that what has happened here shows that this is more than just a bad apple. This is an institutional problem in, in the police and it requires an institutional response. One final thing I'd, I'd say on this is that I thought was particularly interesting comments surrounding this is people were saying, you know, God, it must be so awful to have been that couple who, who witnessed this and, and went past the police and you can't blame them for, for going past because, you know, they, they would have expected a cop to be arresting someone if, you know, they had a right to arrest them. What I did hear said, though, was even if they had, you know, gone up to, to that person, if you ask a police officer, what are you doing? Why are you arresting this person? If you ask someone who is being arrested, oh, do you, do you know why you're being arrested, etc.? What you will get is abuse from the cops. They'll They'll tell you to go away and threaten to arrest you. So we do live in a society where it's seen as deeply suspicious to ask what authority the police are acting with. And, you know, this in an extremely extreme way shows how how dangerous that is and, and why we all should embrace this idea that when the police are doing something, everyone in the vicinity has a right to know what it is and what, what power, what authority they're they're using to try and limit the the number of abuses which which we know are are carried out on a very very regular basis let's 
go on to our final story. We've offered a fair amount of speculation on this show as to why Andrew Neil, the BBC's former star interviewer, left GB News. Now, thanks to an interview in the Daily Mail, we can hear his perspective straight from the horse's mouth. The piece is headlined... GB News is just a disaster. I came close to a breakdown. It would have killed me to carry on. I had to quit. Andrew Neil breaks down in tears in his first interview since his exit from Channel he helped create. It's an article with some real um, jaw droppers. We'll take you through some of the juiciest bits. To begin, as was clear, anyone who watched the first two weeks of GB News will know that the channel was beset by technical mishaps. Neil describes the impact that had on him. He says, that stress was just huge. It meant you couldn't think about the journalism. You were just constantly wondering, will we make it through the hour? By the end of that first week, I knew I had to get out. It was really beginning to affect my health. I wasn't sleeping. Poor Andrew, losing sleep because the uh, the chirons were wrong under different guests' uh, images on, on, on GB News. You, you really do feel sorry for the man. Ever vain, Neil was also upset about the set. He said, It actually looked like I was Kim Jong-un in a bunker about to launch a nuclear attack on San Francisco. When it came to the launch, the digital wall wasn't ready and they discovered they couldn't light or get the sound and audio right for the kitchen table. So we were then reduced to the Habitat sofa found on a skip and the North Korean nuclear bunker. I think he's using poetic license there when he says the Habitat sofa was found on a skip, um, but he was, he was not impressed with how the studio looked. So Neil, used to the high standards of the BBC, was not pleased, was not satisfied with the DIY aesthetic of the Upstart channel, but he also emphasised that his ultimate reason for leaving was not a lack of technical standards, but rather journalistic ones. He describes some pretty wacky ideas from GP News's bosses. Um, so he reveals the following. One of the great ideas before I left was we do trial by television on the guilty men of Brexit, those who tried to stop it, like Lord Adonis and Nick Clegg. I said, why do you want to do that? You won the referendum, we're out. But let me remind you, that was the most miserable period of modern British politics. We should be looking forward to the 2020s. Another suggestion was that we should put secret cameras in classrooms to show how left-wing the teachers were. I said, that's a really good idea, but I think you should take charge of that yourself. And I promise you that after you get in hot water for breaking about five different laws, including filming minors, Come back and talk to me. It goes without saying um, that Andrew Neil hasn't taken any of this well. Um, he complained to the mail. Why pay me all that money? Why make me chairman? Why make me lead presenter and then just not listen? So I'm angry that what should have been my last big media gig, which, if we'd made it work, could have been great, turned out to be the worst eight months of my career, the worst by far, from early January to last weekend when I finally got free of everything. Don't forget, I've been on the IRA hit list twice. I've had special protection, anti-terrorist forces outside my house. I've been on the jihadists hit list. This feels worse. Dahlia. Who does your sympathy lie with in this very sorry tale? I mean, I, I do really wonder where all that money went. I was speaking to someone who was who was in Labour conference. I, I didn't go into, into conference proper, but they said that GB News was like the biggest production 
of all of the different media. They had like the biggest stall and it looked like they had their kind of own studio in conference. I'm just like, there's just so much money. And I'm just like, where has this money gone? It's like a money hole. But I think, I mean, on the topic of, of who do I feel sympathy with? I mean, let's be clear. Andrew Neil is not, you know, breaking down because he spearheaded a project that tried to boost the careers of every sort of whatless right-wing presenter out there from sort of Dan Wooten to, to Nigel Farage. He's not breaking down because a presenter was, you know, literally cancelled from his anti-cancel culture TV show uh, or network for taking the knee in solidarity with England football players uh, who had been facing racist abuse in the wake of the the Euros match. All he took, he, he's, he's having a breakdown because he accidentally became the face and ruined his legacy by becoming the face of what looks like a low budget, embarrassing production. Like all he talked about was himself and how hard it was for him, how he doesn't get any sleep. And he doesn't think at all about you know, all of those communities that are in the crosshairs of the culture wars who experience on a micro and a macro level the effects of the talking points that GB News was essentially set up to embed uh, in even further into our culture. Because let me tell you, those people have had a lot of sleepless nights. They've experienced a lot of stress, a lot of negative impacts from having to live in that kind of culture. And they don't get to fall back on, you know, a nice Daily Mail column where they get to kind of garner sympathy uh, or fall back on, on a nice career. And I want to, you know, I actually want to read out sort of a section from Andrew Neil's opening monologue to give you an understanding that this, he knew what he was doing. It's not the politics of this. And I think now he's, you know, on question time, he was kind of trying to roll back on this to say, you know, oh, I, you know, why do you think I left? It's because it was so divisive. Like he said, his opening monologue said, we will puncture the pomposity of our elites and politics, business, media, and academia, and expose their growing promotion of cancel culture to the, for the threat of free speech and democracy that it is. We will be more concerned with what will raise prosperity and create jobs in our left behind towns than what some overprivileged and ahistoric students decide to hang on their walls in Oxford. Social mobility and a fair chance in life for all will matter more to us than the wasteland to nowhere that is identity politics. Now, the dog whistle is a foghorn, essentially. That was all about saying, you know, we will speak to you. Uh, you know, voters who are fed up of, you know, black and brown and queer people having their concerns represented in politics. They don't matter. Their, their concerns don't matter. We, we will, you know, talk about cancel culture and then cancel the very people who express views that are not aligned with our world vision. And so Andrew Neal, what you can see in that opening monologue is that it was always his intention to throw a match onto a country that is drenched in petrol right now, that is drenched in, you know, exploitation and division that is being metabolized in the form of, you know, the rise of a far right, essentially. Um, and yet it ended up looking low budget and that's what he feels very embarrassed about. But that intention that he had to cultivate this culture, to, to drag the British media landscape even further to the right, and to essentially create a British Fox News, um, that intention is still there. And that's an intention that I have zero sympathy for. I mean, it is, it is worth noting that Andrew Neil was 
going for the culture war angle. It, it wasn't something that came from from without him. The woke watch section that was on Andrew Neil's show, right? So he said, "Oh, we're not going to talk about the obsessions of." Of, of student politics, etc. We're going to talk about how to level up the country and bring prosperity to the rest of the country. Right. I didn't see any segments on GB News about investment in regional areas. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't see any, any segments on new businesses opening and creating jobs. All there was was Andrew Neil going on and on and on about some new controversy or someone who wanted rights or, or someone who wanted to de deny someone else their rights. You know, th there was nothing about any of the the things that they said or he said was lacking from the mainstream media. So all he did was go and talk about cancel culture and then complain that all we talk about is cancel culture. It's It was just the most hypocritical thing I've ever seen. Um, the worry now, I suppose, is the, the News UK channel comes and, and does what GB News tried to do, but did a little better. I want to show you the uh, response from GB News to this interview from Andrew Neil. They said the following. At no point did Andrew raise concerns of the editorial direction of GB News moving to the right. As a member of the board, Andrew had the same rights and abilities to raise concerns, and he was privy to all decisions. Now, that statement to me, I don't trust the GB News spokesperson, but I would guess that if they're saying at no point did Andrew raise concerns, that means that there are no emails which exist of Andrew Neil raising concerns because otherwise he would be able to embarrass them quite quickly. You might say, oh, maybe they spoke about it in a meeting. Andrew Neil was doing most of this from the south of France. So these communications would have happened via email. And I imagine if Andrew Neil had been really annoyed about the direction of the channel politically, there would have been some evidence. So, I mean, I agree with you, Dahlia. It does seem like a fairly post facto justification for leaving a channel that he basically thought was making him look a bit silly and the lighting wasn't good enough to, to draw out the, the, the orange shades in his, in his southern France tanned skin. Um, the final comments on this particular story before we end tonight. I think that you're, you're sort of totally right there. I'm not buying, you know, what do you expect to happen? when you have the roster of presenters that he was that he was presenting. And the thing is here as well is, you know, you, you talked about how we didn't see any segments on, you know, what to do with the increasing precarity of employment throughout the country. We didn't hear anything about, you know, housing crisis, about any of these issues that that he's allegedly, you know, trying to trying to speak to and what the meet the rest of the media won't talk about. And it's because the whole point of this formula is to speak back to and reflect people's material concerns and reflect the disaffection that people feel and then just talk for hours and hours and hours about how working class black and brown people are the reason that you are experiencing the disaffection that you're experiencing. And this is why it's such a toxic mix. And it's why Fox News has been such a driving political force of the far right in the in the in the US is because it sort of speaks a little bit to the kind of very real issues that people are facing and the real alienation and disaffection that people are facing and then just sort of fills all of the gaps with you know it's because people don't want the story of empire to be whitewashed uh so that's actually very much engineered in in the design of, of this particular model of you know Fox News style uh, culture warmongering, so it doesn't surprise me at all that we didn't hear anything uh, that could actually be about sort of leveling up, whatever that whatever that means. 
Um, let's wrap up, Dahlia. It's been a pleasure speaking to you this evening. It's been wonderful to see you, Michael. <laughs> wonderful to see you two. A much more enjoyable 60 minutes than the the last 60 minutes of Keir Starmer's 90-minute speech. Um, <laughs> thank you for watching Tisky Sour. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.